Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. At least, that's the official line. The simple fact of the matter, though, is that I spend the majority of my time talking more about comics, and honestly, the reason for that is because when this show first started, I talked about movies a fair amount, but then I kind of got a little concerned, shall we say, that people would start thinking of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality as the movie podcast, and that is so far away from what I want this show to be that if I have to be honest I would say I kind of overreacted and focused so intently on comics that I kind of forgot about the other two you know and that wasn't like I say that was not done on purpose by by any means it was uh, basically just you know the situation that I was that I was working with and you know the perception that I was trying to build of this podcast you know the way I wanted people to think of it you know so uh, and honestly this is going to sound maybe a little I don't know kind of dickish to say but the reason I didn't want to be thought of as the movie podcast is because well number one there are a shit ton of movie podcasts out there number two All or most of those movie podcasts are, they're more in-depth, they're more informative, and honestly, I mean, I think most of them, there's a quality that they have that I'm not likely to reach on my own, unless I devote a serious amount of time and attention and study to it, and fuck it, I'm kind of lazy. The other thing... And this is the part that's going to sound maybe a little dickish. The other thing is... In our geek fraternity, it is so easy for people to focus all of their time, effort, and energies on movies and whatnot. And you know what? Call it elitist. But I do think there's an extent to which the comics that inspired these movies maybe get a little overlooked. Until a fucking movie comes out, that is, and then all of a sudden, everybody's an expert on this comic. And, I don't know, I just, I didn't want to be that guy, is what I'm saying, and I freely admit, maybe that is kind of a jerk thing to say, but, well, fuck it, I said it. So, anyway. Now, rather than go through a bunch of comic book-related movies and whatnot that, honestly, probably tons of other podcasters have talked about at length ad nauseum. Instead, I decided, you know what, I do want to talk about some movies, but I want to do it sort of my way. And so, I present to you the top top five five movies movies Magnus Magnus will always own. own. It's basically a, a kind of a simple proposition, actually. These are the... These are the five movies that I'm always going to have a copy of, whether it's, you know, a digital version on my hard drive or a DVD or a Blu-ray or 
fucking whatever comes next. These five movies are always, always, always going to be within arm's reach of me. So one qualifier that I want you guys to keep in mind as I go through this list. These movies are more than just favorites. Because any dipshit can put together a list of his five favorite movies. No, my friends. These are essentials. I must own them. And if I had absolute power, I would pass a law that says everyone else must own these movies too. As to sequence, this is not in any order except chronological, right? So the oldest movie is coming first. The most recent one is going to be last. So just keep that in mind. So number one is Casablanca. Now, this may seem a little bit obvious to some of you because it's Casablanca is one of those movies that everyone or most everyone has seen, and it's kind of acknowledged, and I would even say kind of accepted, as one of the greatest films of all time, right? You're generally not going to get a whole lot of debate over that, and I understand, but my reason for choosing it is because Casablanca is, is that rare golden age of Hollywood type of movie that literally anybody can sit down and watch, even if they don't like golden age of Hollywood movies, they'll enjoy this. Even if they don't really like black and white movies, they'll enjoy this. Even if they're not really into war movies, well, this isn't really a war movie as such, so they'll, they'll get into this. Even if they're not really propaganda films, they're not big on that, on, uh, they're not big on propaganda films, they'll still enjoy this. And yes, Casablanca is a propaganda film. Now, I realize the perception that a lot of people uh, out there have is that only the Germans made propaganda films. Bull fucking shit. All right? America was making just as many propaganda films as Germany was. Possibly more, in fact. Because during the Third Reich, the German film industry released something like 100 films per year, of which total 10 were out-and-out propaganda films. This against hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other uh, propaganda films, or rather regular films that were released, only 10 were fully avowed propaganda films. I can think of 30, uh, I don't know about 30, but I can definitely think of 20 propaganda films made by the United States during that same time frame. So this is not by any means just a German thing. But what I will say is that Casablanca has a quality to it that is, I would say, virtually foreign to to golden age Hollywood movies, at least of this vintage. There's a, there's a style to it, you know, that it, it's like, it, it's, it's enough that it transcends I don't know, the, the propaganda aspects of, of the film. The other thing is, you know, there's a, there's a melodrama to it that is only possible, in fact, not just in film, specifically Golden Age of Hollywood type of, types of film, where 
you have these larger-than-life characters on the one hand that are constantly being foiled and undone by, I would say, fairly common and mundane types of conflicts and circumstances and whatnot. And in a weird kind of way, I would actually point to Casablanca as a perfect film, not just in terms of likability, but in terms of efficiency. Every single scene advances character, advances plot. It does something. It's not just meaningless runtime. Everything is important. Everything is going somewhere. And this is just one of those one of those films that you could uh, you could never bottle and sell this type of thing as a as as a formula. It's basically one of those things where you know lightning strikes in a bottle. You know, a film that by all rights we shouldn't even remember today is one of the great classics that America has ever produced. And to me, that says something. You know, just a testament of how this thing has stood up to to the test of time, you know? And I don't really consider myself to be much of a Humphrey Bogart fan, but damned if I can't take my eyes off him in this movie, you know? And the other thing is, you know, there's there's an acting style that was so prevalent in, I would say, the 30s, the 40s, and somewhat into the 50s and 60s of this kind of... I don't even really know what to what to call it, but there's just this kind of theatrical Velveeta that's going on in every single scene that on the one hand, it's very dynamic, it's very dramatic, it's very passionate, but on the other hand, there's this over-the-top element to it that you just don't see in modern film. And I would say you haven't seen in modern film, I'm thinking probably since the 1970s, which will be coming back to in just a minute, but not really since the 1970s, you know? And since about that time, film performance tends to be a little bit more grounded and, dare I say, realistic. And on the one hand, I can see where that may be more appealing to people, or at least young people today. You know, this mode of performance that most actors work with today, that kind of very gritty, very methody type of acting on the one hand. On the other hand, though, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think that film as an art form has kind of lost something because of the the different acting style that goes on in film today versus the films of yesteryear. And really, the best example that I can think of in all of this truly is Casablanca. So... This is one of those movies that is, it's not just interesting in its own right, which, frankly, that would be enough for me, but more that it's, it's kind of a time capsule in a weird, fucked up kind of way, you know? And the there's also the fact that there's a modern aspect to this, that it's got such a close relation to uh, that song, You Must Remember This. I believe is what it's called. In fact, uh, no, what am I saying? No, that's the name of the documentary. The song is called As Time Goes By. My bad. Sorry about that. The name of the song is As Time Goes By. And if you watch a movie like Titanic, 
I would go so far as to say Titanic is kind of inseparable from that What's that Celine Dion song? My Heart Will Go On. It's basically part of the film's score. It's not just a pop song that was released by Celine Dion, although it's certainly that. The melody and the, the I guess, the, the style of that permeates the entire film score for Titanic. I mean, you cannot get away from that song, or at least that theme, when you watch Titanic. And honestly, the same is true to some degree or another of other films there where they have that one song that's really associated with them. And I think that that same thing is true of, of Casablanca. It's, it's honestly the earliest example of that, that, at least that I can think of. But unlike those other, those other films, you really cannot separate more than any other movie you cannot separate as time goes by from Casablanca it just can't be done it's actually part of the dialogue it's part of the movie it's part of these it's part of the character conflicts you know this um, tension that exists between Ilsa and, and, and Rick you know and a lot of that is actually centered on as time goes by that was kind of their song and so there's a sort of modern aspect to that where more in terms of cheap kind of gimmicky marketing stuff you see that same sort of thing happening in other movies but with Casablanca it's actually kind of organic to the film it doesn't feel you know forced into the movie by some fucking marketing department because hey we need a hit song to tie in with with this movie and I don't know I mean there's just there's a purity to Casablanca that I really truly do not think was necessarily intended by the people who created it and I would even go so far as to say it's kind of foreign to a lot of Casablanca's peers you know the the movies that came out maybe five years during the five years before Casablanca came out and maybe the five years after Casablanca came out I don't know it's just Casablanca is just sort of in a in a category all by itself. And that's why it's on my list of movies that I will always own. Next is The Godfather. And I speak here of The Godfather. This isn't actually the the name of the movie, but just for accuracy's sake, The Godfather Part 1. Nothing against The Godfather Part 2. I just happen to like the first Godfather movie the most. And I think the reason for that is because there's a sense in which this first Godfather movie has I don't know the most relatable themes for the for for Michael because he really is the the main character, you know, the protagonist of the film. And this is the one where I'll, the things that he does I don't think anybody out there would necessarily condone them per se, but I do think that we'd relate to where Michael is coming from. That if push came, came to shove, what might some of us be willing to do to protect family? And it would really suck to be put into this kind of position by circumstances and just sort of, you know, things that can happen to you in life. But nevertheless, that is where Michael found himself, and 
the the decisions that he makes, the actions that he takes, none of that really seems all that forced. You know, when you start getting into The Godfather Part 2, you have Michael willingly getting into bed with the Cuban government, willingly getting into bed with Hyman Roth, willingly killing uh, Fredo, his own brother, so on and so forth, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, and he's basically progressed from the character that we saw in the first movie, who was basically, to a degree, kind of victim of circumstance, to this is a man who on some level or another relishes the things that he's doing. And to me, that kind of takes away something from the relatability of the character. Now, yes, there's a very strong argument that this is not a character we're really supposed to sympathize with and relate to all that much. And I'm extremely receptive to that argument. Hell, I even agree with it. I'm just saying that there's a point, and damned if I can tell you when it happens in The Godfather Part Two, but there comes a point when the audience stops sympathizing with Michael and they start in a way pitying Michael and you don't really get that quite as much in the in the first Godfather movie I mean yeah our heart does kind of go out to him but it comes from the sense of solidarity you know what would I do in these exact same circumstances well guys I think if we're being honest with ourselves a lot of us would do the same stuff that Michael does in the first movie, you know? Maybe we wouldn't have gone quite as far with it as he did, but I think a lot of us would make a lot of the same types of choices, as does Michael. And that, I think, is really the, the key to the reason that I love the first Godfather so much. And really, I would say more than any of the other two, Godfather films, you know, and there's also, I guess, the more practical aspect that sometimes I enjoy listening to director commentary for movies, and Francis Ford Coppola, his his Godfather commentary, I, I would truly recommend that commentary to everybody, because Coppola was truly behind the eight ball with the movie studio. He had no real... He didn't have the same type of clout when he made the first Godfather as he did the second Godfather. And so he had a smaller budget to work with, and he has all of these just really interesting anecdotes about, you know, having to fake shooting locations in certain part of New York and, you know, the, you know, what the production had to do to, to get the shots that they need. And also the battles that Coppola had to face in order to make this as a bona fide period piece because the movie studio wanted this originally to be set in the modern day in spite of the fact that the book itself was set in the past. It's cheaper to make a film in the modern day, just whenever that is. It's cheaper to make a film set in the modern day than it is to do a period piece. But... This is one of the few battles that Coppola was actually able to win. He persuaded the studio to let him make this as a period piece. And I think the final product as a film is better for it. But, but honestly, that commentary is more entertaining because of the running gun battles that Coppola had to fight with Paramount, you know? So just from that standpoint, it's, it's a better film, I think, than what came 
than what came next. But it's also just the more interesting, I guess, behind-the-scenes type of story. And, you know, the older I get, the less I want to know about how the sausages are made. So, there you go. The Godfather is one of those movies that I will always own. Next is JFK. Now, whether anyone buys into the conspiracy theories or not, for my money, this one's worth seeing just for the visual stylizations. You know, those, those flashes of thought that pop through Kevin Costner's mind as he, as he goes through his investigation and all of that bullshit. Plus, I mean, dude, check this sucker out on IMDb sometime and look at that cast. I defy anybody to find a better cast than that. I mean, it's just never going to happen. You don't get casts like this anymore, you know? And you've got Kevin Costner, Sissy Spacek, Michael Rooker, Tommy Lee Jones, Joe Pesci, Kevin Bacon, uh, who, fucking uh, Wayne Knight. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on, you know? And both in terms of what JFK introduced to cinema, in my opinion, you know, that sort of... I don't even know what you call it, but that kind of... The, those flashes of, of thought and imagination that the JFK brought to the table, that kind of stuff happens a lot more often now. But prior to, prior to the advent of JFK, this kind of stuff just really wasn't done in Hollywood movies all that much, you know? I think JFK has got an unsung legacy of influence and inspiration on Hollywood in the intervening years. Now, there's really no way to talk about JFK just as a film. I mean, sooner or later, you have to start talking about the questions that JFK raised, and indeed, I have done so. Michael Bailey and I recorded a commentary for the director's cut of JFK, so those of you who are so interested, feel free to search that episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality Out, and listen to our commentary, and you'll hear exactly what we think concerning the ideas put forth by JFK. But just as a film, this movie belongs in everybody's collection because there's really nothing else out there, even films by Oliver Stone. There's nothing else out there that's quite like this, you know? Nobody does it quite the way that JFK does. And this is just an incredibly enjoyable, incredibly powerful film. And guys, let's not forget, this has got... I would say John Williams more kind of on the downslope of his career, but notwithstanding, this is one of the great Williams scores of all time. Now, true, I don't exactly put it on the same level as The Empire Strikes Back or Superman or Jaws or any of those other ones, but there's just amazing scores that, that John Williams is famous for. But in terms of the second tier of John Williams scores, honestly, I think this belongs at the top of the list, you know, of sort of that second tier of Williams scores. That it's it's incredibly moody, it's powerful, it's atmospheric, it's melodic, it's memorable. I mean, it's basically everything that you want from your film score. Now, the story goes that Williams basically composed the score for JFK sight unseen. 
Basically, Oliver Stone pitched Williams on what his ideas were for the movie. Williams then composed the score, and then Oliver Stone shot the movie and then dropped the score in. And I think that's maybe a little bit inaccurate. My understanding is actually that Williams composed the themes of the film, and then he actually scored those themes to the film once the film was actually finished, you know? So he actually, he, he wrote basically the music, but he didn't actually write the compositions until after the film was completed. That, I think, is, that's just the way I've heard it, so I don't know. You know, there's a lot of apocryphal nonsense on this, and this is one of those things that really not all that many people who know what they're talking about have ever really clarified. So, I don't know. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Mountain Dew here. Also, while I'm at it, I'm gonna take a, uh, a drag off of my e-cig. get back into the list, the the next one here is the Shawshank Redemption. I mean, you've all seen this, right? Amazing. I used to have what I, what I called the movie of the week. Before I started doing Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, what I'd do is I'd, I would watch a movie, listen to the film score if I could find it, and then also do just a lot of, you know, research into behind-the-scenes type of minutia. If there's a director's commentary or producer's commentary or what have you, I'd listen to that. And, you know, all in all, I would basically just try to learn everything that I could. And I basically did it sort of on a lottery system. And I knew I was going to do The Shawshank Redemption as one of my movies in the week. Or rather, movies of the week back in the old days. But... That is not how I discovered the Shawshank Redemption. Like most of you, I discovered the Shawshank Redemption during one of its many, many, many airings on HBO. And this is one of those movies that I would almost want to put it in the same category of, of the first Godfather film, or the first Star Wars film, or maybe a few others, that the moment I see this movie, I see that it's on, I just can't take my eyes off the damn thing, you know? There's something about this movie that just captures your attention. These characters are so well-developed that by the end of the movie, they really do feel, many of them, like real people. And, I don't know, I mean, this is just, it's an easy movie for me to recommend to anybody, you know? And, you know, there's a very strong argument that Tim Robbins is kind of certifiable nowadays. But at least back in the old days, I mean, this was... He was just a good actor playing a career-defining role. And this is maybe one of those arguments that it is possible for an actor to peak too soon. That it might have been better for for Tim Robbins just on a professional level. If he'd gotten another five or six movies under his belt, 
before doing this, because I truly don't think that his career has ever completely recovered from the amazing, I would say, bravura performance he gives as Andy Dufresne in this film, you know? And I think it is possible, and I'm going to be coming back to this topic in just a minute, I do think it's possible for an actor to peak too soon. And I can't help thinking something like that may be what happened with Tim Robbins. Now, it could also be that the guy's kind of a maniac. I mean, we can't overlook that. But I prefer to think that Tim Robbins is... He, he just... He just peaked too soon, you know? I don't know. So... The other thing is... And Morgan Freeman is probably the one that put this into words maybe best... But this is one of those movies that it's about male friendship. You know, there's not any kind of a retarded fucking love story between these two men or anything like that. They're, this is just friendship, you know? Solidarity with, with your friend. That's what I think is at the heart of the Shawshank Redemption. And when you think about it, there are really not very many other movies that are really just that... I don't know, pure about it, you know? So, but this one is. And I think that's one of the reasons why men, at least in my observation, men more than women, identify with the Shawshank Redemption. Not to speak of the fact that it's it's either an all-male cast or it's mostly male. So there's, I don't know, there's maybe less of an entry point here for women, but I do think that's at least part of the reason why men tend to gravitate toward the Shawshank Redemption as a classic favorite movie than do women. I mean, I'm sure this movie has female fans. I just would assume it has more male fans. So, this is a movie that Magnus will always own. Number five. And this may seem a little obvious to some of you, but Pulp Fiction. Now, yes... Samuel L. Jackson gave one of the most iconic performances of his entire career as Jules Winfield. And, you know, we cannot underestimate that. And, yes, this was John Travolta's big comeback movie. You know, he'd gone from being one of the big stars of the 1980s to being a washed, you know, a, a washed-up sort of nobody. And this was his ticket back to the big time, which he promptly pissed away, but I'll save you that rant. All of those things and more, all of those things hold true. The music, you know, the songs that Quentin Tarantino chose to use in this film, those are all amazing. But this is one of those generation-defining movies that comes along sometimes that, in its own weird kind of way, it's not so much that it necessarily depicts what that what that generation is doing because I don't think very many people you know kids who were watching this were throwing boxing matches or shooting heroin or any of that kind of stuff but there's something about a there's some kind of zeitgeist that a movie can sometimes tap into and I mean on a very cultural level you know the way I always tell it to people is that my parents' generation had The Graduate. My generation had Pulp Fiction, you know? And I would say that The Graduate 
it was kind of it was representative of you know the thoughts and the direction of the baby boomers at that time this sort of aimlessness you know what the fuck do I do now kind of a thing and they saw themselves in in Ben Braddock in The Graduate and like I say I don't think very many kids or teenagers or college students or what have you saw themselves in the in the pulp fiction characters but at the same time there's this I don't know there's the only word I can think of to really describe it is there's a zeitgeist that the graduate and pulp fiction both reached they're stylistically nothing alike what the the reasons that each generation embraced those movies have nothing to do with one another you know the baby boomers identified with the graduate i am very concerned about you if you identify with any aspect of pulp fiction any of these characters you know but if i had to put it into words what i would say is that pulp fiction was kind of a revelation to my generation you know that cinema can be so much more than just the kind of mindless schlock action films that Hollywood had been foisting upon us for all of those years. You know, cinema can, it can say things, it can be things, it can do things. It doesn't have to be just mindless, idiotic, mass-produced entertainment. It can, it can be art. And for as harsh and grating as some parts of Pulp Fiction might be, you know, people shooting heroin, or even snorting heroin in one case, I still quantify this as being art in its own kind of way. And this was a revelation to my generation, and God knows the, the, the people that were older than I was when this movie came out, that this is what film can be. It can be this, or it can be more, or it can be something else. It can be different. It can still be important. And that truly did not seem to ever occur to my generation prior to Pulp Fiction, you know? And I would say that in a, in a weird, visceral kind of way, the boomers took that same lesson from The Graduate. You know, yes, they saw themselves with, in, in Ben Braddock, you know? They identified with that character. And honestly, who the hell didn't want to boff Mrs. Robinson? But over and above that, I think The Graduate showed the boomers that film doesn't have to be just disposable, schlocky, you know, beach blanket bingo kind of bullshit. It can be art. And that same lesson was taught to my generation by Pulp Fiction. And it's for that reason that Magnus will always own this movie. Now, that's basically the, it, uh, the end of my, of, of my top five list. But it's like anything else in life, I do have a couple of honorable mentions, and these are all in really no particular order. So the first of the honorable mentions is Clerks 2, and I think the reason Clerks 2 didn't actually make the list, apart from the fact that it's in some sense still a little too new to rate in some ways, because if you look at these uh, at the at the movies that have, that are actually on the list, the newest one is 20 years old. And by that standard, Clerks is relatively newer than that. Clerks 2 is newer than that. So there's that to consider. Now, you might ask yourself, why did I say Clerks 2 
rather than the first clerks. Well, the reason for that is I enjoy uh, clerks. It's a it's a ton of fun, but it doesn't have the same type of I don't know zeitgeist, I guess, as Pulp Fiction. You know, it doesn't have the timelessness to it of of, of Casablanca. It doesn't have the epic scope of the Godfather. It doesn't have the cinematic innovations that were introduced by JFK, you know? And it doesn't really have the same kind of heart as Shawshank Redemption, you know? So, honestly, like I say, the first Clerks movie, I dig it. I love it. But to me, it's just not top five material. Clerks 2, this is Kevin Smith, I think, being a lot more polished with his craft this is a Kevin Smith who's a lot more confident in himself and his abilities. And he's still got, you know, a lot of kind of bathroom humor that he likes to make. But there's more heart in Clerks 2. And the reason this is not actually on the list, at least in some ways, apart from the fact that it's really too new to rate even now, it still touches on the theme of male friendship that I think is already prevalent in The Shawshank Redemption, which I regard as a fundamentally superior film. Now, the day may come when Clerks 2 replaces The Shawshank Redemption, simply because of the fact that, you know, these characters are more closely my generation. And so you get a lot of the same kind of brotherly bond between these two guys as you do in The Shawshank Redemption, but it's a little bit more my generation. So, like I say, the day may come when Clerks 2 uh, supplants the Shawshank Redemption on my list, but that day is not today. So, at least there's that. Moving right along. This next one is... Uh, this next honorable mention is Rushmore. Now, this is not a case of just pure sentimentality. Although there, there, there is that. I mean, this movie was shot in Houston, and I swear to recognize at least two of the extras in this movie. I truly do believe I know them. I've met them. You know, I don't, I mean, I'm not really in contact with them today, so I can't really ask them, hey, were you in this movie? But I'm pretty sure that's who they are. But more than just that, you know, and the fact that I recognize all of, you know, the sights and and surroundings of this movie, this this film, Rushmore, it's just got a certain magical something or other about it that I just really cherish. I mean, it came out when I believe I was actually heading into my senior year of high school. I'm actually going to kind of vamp for time a little bit and just double check, you know, the, the release date for this movie and when exactly did it come out because, yeah... Actually, no, in fact, I was a senior in high school. And what I wanted was... I actually wanted to see this movie in theaters. It just... I don't know why. I couldn't put my finger on it. But there was something about this movie that... interested me. You know? But whatever happened, happened. And my girlfriend and I, we just... I mean, at the time, we were only seeing the... The fucking movies that she wanted to see in theaters. And we're talking like stupid bullshit like Notting Hill or, or, or stuff like that. I, mean, I forget, you know, whatever else was out at the time. That's the kind of stupid bullshit that we were seeing. 
And, you know, I never did get a chance to see Rushmore in theaters, but I really wanted to, you know. And what ended up happening was my the at the tail end of my uh, of the first semester of my senior year, basically the tail end of 1998, I basically came down with Satan's own case of mono. And as a result, I was put on homebound. And what would happen is a I can't even say a teacher, but somebody from the school would come to my house and basically drop off my homework. And ostensibly, she was there to answer any questions I have about my work and, you know, how to do certain things. But honestly, the fact is the you know, she was a complete fucking idiot and she couldn't answer anybody's questions. She couldn't help me with anything and fuck her. So never really got a whole lot of help from her. But one of the things that I noticed was, you know, it just doesn't take very long to do an entire day's worth of schoolwork whenever you have basically no distractions, you know? And so I was basically finishing all of my homework and probably, shit, assuming I even had any work to do that day, at most, I would say two, or if it was a really monster day, I would say three hours at the most, but usually the the standard was two hours or less. In fact, on some days it was way less. It was like 30 or 40 minutes or something like that. So I had a shit ton of free time. And so one of the things I, I would do is I would rent a shitload of movies. And kind of like I talked about back in my episode about Gattaca, there was a point when it was extremely difficult for me to get to sleep. You know, the fever was my fever was so intense that I wasn't able to sleep I couldn't get to sleep for days sometimes and so because of that you know I have plenty of time to sit around watching movies and so I rented Rushmore and there was something I don't know very fairy tale like very dreamlike about this movie that I mean, I don't think any of us truly went to school with somebody like Max Fisher. The point is that he's an aberration, even at Rushmore. He's an aberration. And just the imagination. And I don't know, the, I, even now, it, it, it's like words fail me, but there's this very... What I, what I came to understand is that this is a very Wes Anderson-y type of film. Which makes sense, because fucking Wes Anderson directed it. But this was the movie... I never saw Bottle Rocket. So, Rushmore was actually my first real exposure to Wes Anderson as a filmmaker. And he's got this weird sort of quirky way of, of, of shooting a movie. And there's an extent to which I would say Rushmore is kind of the... It's sort of the quintessential Wes Anderson movie. I mean, he's directed movies before this. He's directed movies after this. But there's something specifically about Rushmore that... I don't know. I mean... It seems like this is the best representation of his work. You know, if people are determined to see only uh, one Wes Anderson movie... I mean, this is the one I'd recommend, you know? And and, And again, there's the fact that... You know, Max is about my age, or he was, you know, at the time that this movie came out. And so that part was easy to connect to. Plus, you know, he went to a private school. You know, Rushmore was a private school, and I was dating at that time a Catholic schoolgirl. So, you know, there was that to consider. So, I mean, I I guess what I'm saying is I recognized... I didn't identify, necessarily, but I recognized 
bits and pieces of my world in Rushmore as a film. And in some cases, that's actually very literal, because like I say, this thing was shot in Houston, so I recognize the sites. You know, all of those different um, buildings and whatnot. I recognize them, you know? So, anyway. Moving right along, the next one is Carrie. Now, I dig Carrie, but part of me thinks it's only on the list because of sentimentality from when I first watched it, which was with that same girlfriend I mentioned just a second ago. We ended up, whenever we would see movies, it was always the fucking bullshit she wanted to see. She and I spent, I think it was a, a spring break or something, but we basically locked ourselves in her apartment in Huntsville. And I swear to think that all we did that entire week was eat pizza and rent movies. And one of them was Carrie. You know, and well, actually, I say that it was spring break. You know, now that I think about it, it might have been the week of Thanksgiving in two, November of 2000. I don't remember. You know what? Now, I, 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 I guess, no, you know what? I guess it would have to have been because, you know, spring break she didn't live there in spring break of 2000 and we were scarcely on speaking terms anymore by spring break of 2001 so i guess yeah it would have had to have been uh, thanksgiving week of 2000 now that i think about it so yeah that makes sense well whatever anyway i guess it was thanksgiving week of 2000 or something because the point is i was there for a fucking long time you know and i just remember that those were you know fun days and I think the fact that I'm talking more about what was happening at the time than I am about the movie itself says something. I don't know. But anyway, the point is, Carrie is one of those movies that tried to be art. And truly, you know, I think at the time that it that it was released, this was a fairly high concept. And I would say for its time, you know, relatively speaking, very modern type of movie. But the thing is, it's just aged very badly, you know? You could fairly well say that Halloween, the first Halloween movie, has aged incredibly well. You know, just because of just how timeless the cinematic style of it is, you know? I mean, yeah, people are driving around in those 70s-rific vans, and people have those kind of 1970s-style hair helmets and stuff, but otherwise, it's a kind of timeless movie in terms of cinema, you know? Carrie isn't. It's got a lot of 1970s-isms going to it in terms of its style that I think ultimately kind of hurt it, you know, in the long run. But I do enjoy it as kind of a horror film. So, I don't know. There's that. I enjoy it. Finally, American Beauty. Now, yeah, I love it, but this, again, is one of those movies that it was amazing at the time that it came out, but these days, some of it is just kind of emo, and it's just not well written, and it's, honestly, it's got other issues, too. I mean, yeah, it's got Thora Birch, topless Thora Birch, I might add, but I don't know. This American Beauty just doesn't seem quite like top five material in my mind. I mean, once upon a time, it might have been, but this is one of those movies, like I say, that just hasn't aged well. I mean, I remember being in fucking love with this movie. I was an American Beauty devotee back in 1999, but this is one of those movies that, you know, when you when you come back to it for the rewatch, 
at least for my participation, it's just... It's just not as strong as I remember it being, you know? And... I will say this, though. American Beauty was ripe for satire and getting kind of picked on and everything and basically being lampooned in media. And I submit to you that if American Beauty had come out in 1998 or 2000, that indeed is what would have happened. But American Beauty, luckily, came out the same year as The Matrix, and The Matrix was what got targeted for all of the satire and the lampooning and the spoofs and whatnot. And American Beauty didn't really have as many parodies as the Matrix did, and my contention is it would have under other circumstances, because it's got some, when you think about it, very iconic scenes. So, maybe it dodged a bullet, I don't know. But what I, what I will say is that the main reason that American Beauty is actually on my list is because of that fucking incredible score by Thomas Newman. Now, I like, you know, those sort of orchestral, very theme-driven types of film scores. I love those. I dig them. But I also like the more sort of experimental approach that the Thomas Newmans of the world and the Hans Zimmers of the world are famous for taking. And Thomas Newman, he's got a very percussive uh, type of uh, approach to the music. This is, to me, this is one of... Thomas Newman's best scores, if not his very best, one of his very best scores, I can just, I never get enough of it. I, if I have a criticism of the score, it's that it's not longer. I want more of this, you know? And you know what they say, sometimes the best compliment an audience member can give you is demanding that you give them more. So that is the, I guess the complete tally here, the top five movies that Magnus will always own, as well as four honorable mentions. That, I think, is pretty much that. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I never thought I would do a top five listing as one of my episodes, but, uh, I don't know. I guess sometimes, sometimes you can surprise yourself. So, anyway, that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast, usual discussion about comics, 
movies, and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to 2TrueFreaks.com.